Argument for a fully distributed workforce, what are some of the cons? This is interesting. So my company's been fully remote from the start. We did this started in 2019. We were hiring people with this intention, with the sole understanding that we're going to need the top talent to be able to uh, achieve our mission and our goals. And not all the top talent lives in the same zip code. And so there was a big part of talent access. And there's a separate part of it that like, I saw even before COVID happened that there most people operated better in a in a primarily remote work environment or a hybrid environment. So I saw that in businesses already. A field I worked at a company with a field sales team. More than half the company didn't come into the office every day because they were in the field, sales, account management, local service, et cetera. And so I saw that type of environment working and noticed that it was also working for me. And so that's what we've gotten then. Obviously, COVID forced us into like high growth mode in a fully, fully distributed remote environment. I think that the world is recalibrating on how this should work. Um, and I think that the core tenets that I see here are that number one is that everyone should have optionality. So there's not a one size fits all that it may be fully distributed and fully in the office isn't the right solution. Um, but I have noticed as I talk to more and more people, that the people that are moving into a hybrid work environment actually really do enjoy going to the office for two days a week. And they especially enjoy it because if they went for zero days, then nobody would care. So they have total autonomy and freedom, but they choose to go into the office because they like to see people because it's a buzzing environment, because it creates social opportunities, things like that. And so I think that there's probably some level of a hybrid solution that's actually ideal. Some of the cons in fully remote work, this is more like for me on a personal level, like you never get the like, hey, you want to go and have lunch or hey, like I just, you know, I'm off this call. You want to have a coffee? You don't, you're at the water cooler and you're talking to someone, they say something interesting. You never get, you don't get those interactions naturally in a fully remote environment. At least you have to work a lot harder for them. Um, so whether that's from a business lens, like I just shared this idea with somebody and they took it off and made a great thing with it. Or just like, I want to be friends with my coworkers at a level where we like go out to have dinner once a week, or we do go to the gym before work on Wednesdays. That type of stuff doesn't happen in remote, which I think is a, it's a con for some people, but it's not for others, right? So again, this is sort of like a, is not applying a one size fits all to everyone. It's interesting. We've never, we've, I've, I've never thought about this before as a leader, but I have over the past couple of months thought about it, that perhaps maybe we want to have an office in Austin, Texas, that people, if we did a company event or things like that, we'd always have a place to go. And that if people wanted to relocate or if the people that we hired already live in Austin, that they could use the office. Um, that's sort of maybe further in the future, but it's something that I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit on the back of so some of the thoughts I just shared right there. Tips for getting a promotion in my org where I have a few gaps in my resume. Um, I don't see how, like, once you get into a company, no one gives a fuck about your resume. <laughs> once you get into a company, what matters is, are you delivering for the company? And so, like, if you're trying to get a promotion inside of your current business, 
forget about your resume. And then think about what am I going to do to meaningfully impact this company? Um, like, I think that, that you create your own promotion by identifying a business problem, by proposing a solution on how to solve it, by leading that project and, and having it be successful, and by demonstrating it makes a meaningful impact on the business. Like, that's the roadmap. Um, so the first thing is that you need to develop business acumen. Tons of people, like, I've done this before in my career. Tons of people do it to me right now. People, like... People will bring you projects and pro and programs that are not important to the business. And so that's not going to get an executive's attention. That's not going to get a lot of exec visibility. If you're bringing up and want to work on projects that the executive team doesn't deem important. And so what I would do is so I basically, you know, I'm a, I'm the product manager. I'm the marketing process engineer and what, you know, whatever, put my CEO hat on. And I just start going around. Okay, well, where am I going to start? Let's start the P&L. Okay, this is what the company P&Ls look like. Okay, we're making great. We make a great gross margin. And like our G&A costs are low and the business is 30% profit. And, but we're only growing at 7% a year. Okay, so um, what, what are the things that, that I can work on? One, like there's some really easy things here that will take our profit margin to double it. Like just by doing that. So I'm going to do that and I'm immediately going to make the company more profitable. And when I do that and I make the company more profitable and six months later, our profit margins are now 94% instead of 91%, which means, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on the bottom line. I can use that as ammo to talk about how I strategically framed the problem, thought like an executive and got something done. And now I'm going to figure out how are we going to grow top line revenue? This business, this business is super profitable. It's throwing off tons of cash. Why aren't, um, why are we only growing at 7%? If we started investing this much money in content and this much money in product development and this much money here, could we get the growth rate to go from 7% to 22%? It's only a $10 million business. It's not like we're trying to grow a billion dollar company here. And like, those are the, those are the things that get you promoted. It's actually, I posted about this today. It's actually rooted in the way that you think and the level that you think at. And to get promoted, people think it's a lot about the skills. It's really about the level that you think at and then what you decide to work on and where you focus. Um, I really, um, and I would, like I mentioned, I would, your resume doesn't matter once you're in a company. What matters is what, how you're actually performing and what you're contributing to the company. How do you make one-on-one -on -one meetings with executives productive? Great question. And very timely, actually, because as of a couple of weeks ago, I've stopped doing scheduled one-on-ones. And I think right now I have five direct reports. Coming into next year, I might have eight or nine. And I've stopped doing scheduled one-on-one -on -one meetings and moved purely to a, like almost an as-needed. So I set a plan with each single person. So I'm saying, this is my vision of where I want this function to go and how it ties into the bigger organizational strategy. Then they come back and say, hey, that's not feasible. I need a resource for this. I need to do this. And then we work together to put together what is the final roadmap for that function. For instance, people and culture. We put together that roadmap. And then they can go out and execute. And we both know what is the expectation, what are the timelines, what are the things that are important, and what, what are the orders that they're getting done. And then we don't need a one-on-one -on -one meeting every week to talk about the shit that we both already know, which then gives me back about eight hours a week 
and gives them back time to do other things. And then when we need to collaborate or when we want to brainstorm or work together or do a working session, we do that as needed. And I've just found when I do the meetings as needed versus on a regular time cadence, that they get way more productive. Um, so that's me. I operate different than a lot of executives, but that's, that's the way that's been working for me so far. How do you measure dark social? So for instance, like just so people on the, the podcast later can understand this, like this comment right here, how do you measure dark social from the real estate meerkat? That's never going to get measured by attribution software. And if, you know, the real estate meerkat said, wow, Chris's answer was so smart. I'm going to go and see if I can work with this company. And they leave the TikTok app. They go into their browser. They type in Google. They type in Chris Walker or Refine Labs. They go to our website and they say, I want to buy. Can I talk to your sales team? That the software is going to say that Google search was what drove that and give, do not be able to measure at all what happens on TikTok. And now expand that to dark social. So you have TikTok, LinkedIn, Reddit, podcasts, Facebook and Instagram, third-party events, all the communities, a Discord, a Slack, general word of mouth. Like I go and I answer you and say, hey, buy this product. And I say, and I do that. Every single one of those things doesn't get effectively measured by software. And so we need, like, we're in an era where all the things that I just listed are all the things that are the best way to do marketing today. And so we need a new way to, to measure, which is effectively what we call a self-reported attribution or bubbling it up to a hybrid attribution model that leverages software, leverages self-reported attribution, and leverages other forms of qualitative customer insights to create multiple ways of getting data to create a way to make decisions. Um, and so we literally just asked, so when Real Estate Meerkat, we'll go through the same example. You leave here, you go to Google, you search Refine Labs, you go to the website, you fill out the form and say, hey, I talked to sales. And we ask, how did you hear about us? And then you might write, I was on the live with Chris Walker on TikTok. And then we know that TikTok did something that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Most companies don't measure this. So they literally just don't know. They don't know. They get 100 demo requests a month and they have no idea where they come from. It could be referrals from key people. It could be that they heard, you know, read your magic quadrant if you're an enterprise, if you target enterprise. It could be that they saw the CEO speak. It could be that they listen to the podcast every week. It could be that they see one of your coworkers on LinkedIn every day. And all those things that are driving most of the revenue at companies don't get measured. So they just are like, I guess it's coming from SEO. What types of changes would you make to a website after gathering customer insights? So we like, Derek, we literally do, are doing this right now. So... Um, and I think that the way that we're doing it is going to shape how companies should do it in the future. So um, let me walk through the the process. So imagine you already have a website, right? We Refine Labs had a website before we started this project and the website was doing great. And now we have this idea that we want, like that we've been talking to customers a lot. We want to transform this idea of um, revenue R&D, that companies should be able to innovate on the revenue engine just like they do on, on their product with a combination of infrastructure, research, and a proven, develop, proven development process for revenue programs. So that's like the concept. The way that we got there was through tons of qualitative customer interviews and strategies. So like going and talking to me, talking to customers, me engaging in communities, me brainstorming with people, da -da 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 -da. you come up with the idea. We put a lot of stuff on paper. We were finding it into a homepage. Now this is where it gets interesting. 
So like we launch the homepage and then we run this, uh, this thing called winter. We've been using it. So it's like a message testing platform. And I just think it's interesting for qualitative market research for the long term. I think it's an interesting company. And we go and we have 20 people look at the, look at the homepage and give us all this like comments and feedback through this product. And then we can see where do people have questions? What's not clear? What things aren't we answering? Do people like this? Are they interested in converting? Where are they dropping off? And we get all this data. And then we go through and we make, based on that feedback, we make another iteration specific to the website. And then if you had this running in like a, an ideal form, I think that you would do this research on your homepage. You would build a new homepage and then you would run A-B tests between the two homepages and you would do that every 60 days, every 90 days, whatever you pick the timeline. Um, where it's like really, it's almost like a, it's an ongoing optimization of messaging, but the input to it is this like scaled qualitative, uh, market research that's done in a, in a repeatable way. Um, as opposed to doing all the research up front, like getting something out there and learning and then iterating on that, I think is super smart. So we typically will run very agile, um, and then just do more iterations. Um, so that's the, that's the process that we've taken. And I think that companies like if you're a $50 million company and you aren't like, like getting insights from customers on your homepage and then trying to make a better homepage every quarter, I think you're missing the boat right now. Your, your website is basically your store. It's like the, it's the pre-sales department. Um, and so I think that, uh, I think more companies will do that. And I love the idea of having, qualitative customer research being brought more into B2B and even, and outside of just customer interviews. So you got this like the survey component that's a little bit more scalable and a little bit more easier to analyze. Do you think it's too late to build a personal brand on LinkedIn? No way. I, abso I absolutely don't think that it's quote unquote too late. And honestly, it's almost never, it's almost never too late. It's just whether you're comfortable building and being small and posting content that people don't like while other people have already grown. So like, it's never too late for you to go out and try something or learn something or do something unless you subjectively decide that it's too late, which is often you creating some level of an out for yourself as a disguise for not being secure or confident in yourself. And so like, I don't think that it's too late to build a personal brand on LinkedIn or Instagram or TikTok. People that are good win people that are good will be successful yeah i would just say go forward if that's what you want to do podcast audio video or both all of it look at what i'm doing video every time because video creates something a level of context in micro social that most platforms except for linkedin even though i've been trying to get them to do it most platforms are video first mobile first video first now um and so if you're just creating a podcast with no video i think that you're just missing a big opportunity for an activity that you're already doing. Can you clarify what's hero? I don't understand the part where you have to convert higher than 25%. Yeah, I was going to get my laptop and show this, but it would take too long. So Bruno, inside of your company's sales process, typically, let's just pretend that it's five stages, some are six, but let's just pretend it's five. Okay, so every opportunity that opens starts in stage one and then only a certain percentage of them move into stage two. So basically you have a filter that's going down where you start with 100, 
then you have 30, then you have 12, then you have six, then you win three deals, something to that effect. And so if you start at stage one, you started with 100 and you won three, it's 3%. Stage two, you have 40 and you won three. So that's like 9%. Maybe stage three, you have, you know, let me try and do the math in my head. You have nine in stage three and you won three of them. That equals, it's 33% win rate. So stage three is the first stage greater than 25% win rate. And that becomes the hero stage. And so all pipeline then gets measured based on stage three for that pipeline source. Now, another element that makes this really interesting is that if you have that type of process coming through your uh, outbound engine, then maybe stage three is the number. But for your website, maybe your website comes in, they book a meeting automatically, and you actually win 26% of your stage one opportunities that come through your website. Then for your website, then stage one would be the definition of hero pipeline. And so what this does is it normalizes the definition and amount of pipeline credited to different pipeline sources based on the win rates of the deals. And so what happens in practice today, just to explain the problem, is that companies will generate $10 million in pipeline through their outbound channel by giving away gift cards and cold calling people and chasing around ebook downloads. And they measure pipeline based on when they booked the meeting which would be stage one or stage, let's just pretend it's stage two for this process. So then they got that and they only win 6% of those meetings, but they're calling it pipeline. And then over on the website, the website has people coming through, they're getting to stage two and from and they only created $5 million in pipeline. But from stage two forward, they win 40% of the deals instead of 6% of the deals. When the company goes and looks and tries to figure out where am I going to invest in the future, they're gonna look and say, wow, outbound drove $10 million in stage two opportunities. It's driving our most pipeline. We should go and invest more in that, not looking that they only win it at 6%. And then if conversely, if you looked over, you'd actually drive more revenue with 5 million winning at 40%, 2 million, than you would at 10 million at 6%, 600,000. And so there's no there's no standardization or weighting of pipeline from pipeline source to pipeline source inside of a company or from company to company to be able to compare pipeline. That's what the hero stage does is it standardizes a definition of pipeline that all companies can follow to then be able to compare and analyze their data in a more objective way. Hey, do you think that sales and marketing teams should transform into revenue teams? No, I don't. No, I don't. I think that you should have two, like if you look at this one area of the business, that's the, the area of the business is do the right things to get customers for our company. Do the right things to get customers. And in that group, in that organization, you're gonna have a revenue R&D function, you're gonna have, and potentially a chief revenue officer. So, and then a chief revenue officer is gonna have to manage net new sales and account management if you have that type of recurring business. And then that becomes your thing. But what I'm suggesting and what we do at my company is that the VP of revenue R&D and the chief revenue officer are both on the executive team and they work together. 
And I expect that we're going to find that this works a lot better because we don't have the management layer of the CMO in the middle. And it can work a lot better. What I find, I mean, it's, it's a generalization, but many CMOs are not demand gen experts. And if they are, or many CMOs don't think about revenue generation in the same way. They think about it like lead gen or demand gen. So they're kind of operating in an old way if they even know it. But a lot of CMOs come from brand and comms and stuff like that. So you have this management layer between the CEO and the CMO and the person who's actually doing the real work. And then they have, you, the CRO is involved. I just think it creates a lot of organizational challenges by doing that. So I think that the VP or C level of revenue R&D is going to be a legit function. And I 100% believe they should be separate things, not under the same leader. When you put sales and marketing under one leader, are you going to have two competing functions for one leader and it's going to go one way or the other? And I think that the CEO needs to be actively involved in this stuff more than the, the, what they are. So they just say, okay, C-level executive, you own all of go-to-market. They push it down and they have ops and sales and marketing and you know demand gen. And they're just like, oh, here you go. To me, it's just a really bad strategy. And I can say that about myself too. Like, I don't want to be in charge of both sales and marketing. If I was a rep, I kind of am as the CEO, but if I was a C-level executive, not the CEO on the revenue team, I don't want to be in charge of both of those functions. I want to be in charge of one of them and the one that I want to be in charge in because sales and marketing are very different functions. Sales and revenue R&D, if we look at it in my context, are very different functions. The idea that you're going to install a sales leader that's going to go back and figure out how to run revenue R&D doesn't make sense that it's going to go back and figure out how to make demand gen work in 2022. It's not... They're not going to do that. They're going to focus on the sales team because that's what they know. What's the best way to build community that adds value? So there's tons of communities out there right now, and it's sort of becoming generally commoditized. It's so there's no buried entry. You can stand up a community for like almost no money or absolutely no money. You just get people together and you bring bring people in. So the buried entry is super low and it's getting hot and so everyone is sort of doing it. And so in order to stand out in that, you need to figure out what are the things that we're going to do that are going to set us apart. I think the number one way that you build community is that you drive professional advancement for people, which is what I'm trying to do for all everyone on here. I consider this a little bit of a community. I'm trying to drive accelerated professional advancement for everyone that dedicates time to come here every single week whether you're learning about how you're going to grow your company or any other thing. And if people are getting that level of advancement and success and learning and engagement, then they're going to continue to come back for that. And I think a lot like most communities sort of fall short on that, whether it's because of their revenue model, whether it's because of the overall goal of the community, whether it's because of how, who decides to organize it. And so my community and my thinking is shifting now. Like my shift has gone from, I'm talking to the demand gen director or the VP, and I love all the people that still listen to this because I'm going to definitely level them up. But now thinking a lot more about entrepreneurs and business owners and even people, CEOs and people that are further along than me, I think that some of the things that I've learned in my experience can be really helpful. And some of the things that we've done in a really progressive way could be a way to guide, you know, you know, even more experienced executives and things like that. And so I think that's the number one part of community is how much advancement are people getting from it? Everyone's pushing side hustles lately. Are they essential or just a smart move if you can make time? Christina, I think this is totally independent on each person and what they want to do. 
The idea that a side hustle is required, I think is totally not true and not appropriate for probably 98% of people. The people that are pushing a side hustle are also selling products and services that help you build a side hustle. So that's something as well. I, in 2013 through 2018, always had a side hustle because I knew that I wanted to be a CEO and I knew that I wanted to not have a W-2 or have to work with people that don't get it at some point in my life. And so I always did that. And I'm, I just got so much learning. I didn't make a ton of money from it. I still had a job during that time. I wasn't thinking about when that, can I quit my job? It was really about the learning. And so I think that using it as a way. And then by the time I was like, had the opportunity to start my company, I'd already started two companies. I'd made a ton of mistakes. I knew a lot about finance. I knew a lot about marketing and advertising and sales. And it set me up to be successful. Instead of me starting my first company in 2019, I was starting my third company. Instead of me running, trying to run a company for the first time in 2019, I'd been doing it for six years. And so trying to paint a picture and understand where do you want to go there's tons of ways to make $100,000 a year on your own, but you got to figure out how to get customers. You still basically have a job. You're still working for other companies. And if a customer leaves and you can't replace them, then you don't have income. And so there are pros and cons to the quote unquote side hustle. I think that the people that you almost like have it in you almost. So um, and if you have it in you, then I would say absolutely go for it. It's the best thing. I, and I wouldn't expect it to do so well that you quit your job in the next couple of times. Frame it up as a way to learn first and then see where you get from there. All right. Uh, Nate's got a question here. Chris, urgent need. How can I reach all independently owned pharmacy, convenience stores, and package store owners? Nate, a couple ideas for you. I think this is going to help a lot of people because a lot of companies, B2B companies have audiences that are tough to reach. Small e-commerce companies, for instance, like e-commerce companies, less than 5 million in revenue are very hard to target. There's plenty of them. A couple of things that you could do, you could look and see if there is a Facebook group for these types of professions. And if there isn't one, then you could consider creating it. I would also go and look in Reddit and I would look at all the threads related to the stuff that these people talk about. And I would be engaging and commenting in those threads with your perspective. Lastly, there might be a way to actually like acquire that data. Although I don't think that you're in a position where you'd be able to pay for it or it may not be possible. You could also look for other means to target. But I think that in this type of area, the a content strategy in addition to a community strategy that's niched into here, I think would be the best way. Also, you got pharmacies, convenience stores, and package store owners. And so you got to make sure that if you're going to have a community, that it makes sense to have all of those different demographics and people, companies in there versus having going all in on one of them. It's an interesting debate. Like out of those three, there might be one type of company that's actually your target customer. And if you focused on them, the messaging could be tighter. The community would be more successful and more narrow and more focused. So that's something to consider. Any advice on how to build a culture of posting content on LinkedIn? By having all of the executives at the company do it on an ongoing basis and demonstrating to the rest of the company that it's a critically important thing that executives are going to prioritize their time to do every day or every week. 
That's how you do it. And then if executives do that every day, then what happens? Then new people that join your company from the outside, they join because they saw your executives and they like what you're doing. They like the way that you think. And then when they get here, they want to post. And so part of it is the executive showing the company that it's actually important. Many don't. The second piece of it is executives thinking about this in the right way where they realize that this is a good thing for them, not, oh, my employees posted on LinkedIn, they must be looking for another job. And that's culture related. So those are the two things. You have to demonstrate that it's important to the company by executives doing it. And you need to create a culture with executive leaders that empower people to do things that they want, that are not having side conversations about, hey, is Jimmy looking for their job? He posted on LinkedIn the past three days that are not coming at you and saying, hey, you posted something and it didn't align with our brand guidelines. You got to take it down. All that shit's going to like that. Those are the things that companies do and why none of their employees post on LinkedIn. I've worked at those companies before. I didn't post on LinkedIn at all in 2017. And when I did share my points of view and perspectives, I had to go and talk to HR about it. It was ridiculous. All right, we got one more. Marketing at a small startup, how often do you change up the content running ads, B2B LinkedIn ads? So Jack, there's a metric inside of LinkedIn called frequency. It shows you how many times on average has each person in my audience seen this ad. Um, and then you can look at that at the campaign level, the ad set level, and then the individual ad level. So I'd go all the way into the individual ad level. Then I'd look at on average, how many times have people seen this ad? And people choose anywhere between two and six. So like, if you have a good content stream, then I think 2.5 is the right number. If you sort of don't, your company doesn't invest in content and creative, then you might need to push it to six times per ad because you don't have anything else to replace it with. But I like if I was running it, I'd be targeting two and a half frequency at the ad level. And some of those I'd be shutting off earlier because of, you know, clear, perf there's other things in the test, there's other things that are performing better. So I already know that. So I shut some low performers down and the high performers will run to two and a half. I've been in Facebook ads, like manager for companies that have ad frequencies of 48. On average, in the audience, people are seeing the same ad 48 times, which is super annoying and a super waste of money and shows that you don't know what you're doing. So I would look at the ad level frequency and optimize for around 2.5 to 6, depending on how much content volume you have. All right, everyone. This has been uh, another episode of the TikTok Live. We do this every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, so appreciate you all. See you next week.